Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes, and he arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. We sing it. We mean it. We believe it. We tell others about it. And we bank our eternities on it. But there are skeptics, you know, around us, even in our Bahamas. There are agnostics and there are atheists in our ears speaking to us from unlikely places, perhaps. And there are even persons who claim falsely to be Christians who are uncomfortable with the whole notion of the supernatural and miracles in the Bible. And you know what? Often and unwittingly, we invite these categories of naysayers to infect us with their doubts and their denials. How do we do that, you ask? By choosing certain television programs which we watch or by inviting social media posts that we scroll through. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Often these skeptics, agnostics, atheists, and Bible critics don't accept the biblical accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. And often they try to push and peddle certain myths in hopes of undermining or overturning our faith in the biblical report of Christ's resurrection. This Lord's Day, this Resurrection Lord's Day morning, I want to give you four untrue myths about Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. And they are answered by one passage. They are answered by the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark 16, 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. As you're turning to Mark 16, 1 through 8, I have four myths that I want to expose with you. Number one, Jesus didn't really die, they say. Number two, angels don't really exist, they say. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, they say. And myth four, the Bible doesn't really report the truth. We want to get biblical response to all four of these myths from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. And the first myth, the myth that Jesus didn't really die, the text cited really debunks that by the fact that the women went to Jesus' tomb to anoint him, to anoint his body. Mark 16, 1 to 4, follow in your copies of God's word. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Verse 2, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb, and when the sun had risen... And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. These devoted women had to wait for the Jewish Sabbath, sundown on Saturday, to pass. 
And once that passed, they went somewhere and they purchased burial spices for their Lord. Jews back then did not embalm, per se, like the Egyptians did, but rather Jews respected dead bodies by putting anointing certain burial spices on those bodies to try to mitigate against the stench and odor that would be inevitable. And so these women, I would submit, must have been sure that Jesus was in fact dead, else why have they gone to buy the burial spices to anoint his body? They were sure he was dead. And they made their way to the Lord's tomb, and the text says they arrived early Sunday morning. We know that the purpose for them going, according to the verses, was to anoint Jesus' body. That's what it says in verse 1, that they might come and anoint him. That's why they went. They knew that and believed that inside that very securely sealed tomb was their beloved Savior and friend's dead body, and they wanted to get into the tomb so they could properly respect his dead body with burial spices. And so that's why they asked the question in verse 3 that they asked, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us. They knew they had to get into the tomb because they knew that their Savior's body was dead and lying inside the tomb. To anoint him, they had to get inside. They didn't know how they'd get inside because the stone was very big. They had the question, who was going to roll the stone away, not because they had doubt, but rather because they had a question about the logistics. How were they going to get in when the stone was so big? After all, they came to anoint his dead body with burial spices. When your faith is in an all-powerful God, you buy the burial spices, and then you go to the tomb expecting that this almighty God will somehow open the stone passageway so you can get in. They had faith. They had love for Jesus, and they had faith in God Almighty. And this all means that they were sure that the Lord Jesus had died. They weren't doubting that. They were not uncertain about that. They were not ambivalent about that. They were positive that their Lord and Savior had died. Some people tell you that hold the myth that he didn't really die, that he fainted on the cross. They say he swooned. He fainted. And then he revived. Those who would perpetrate the myth that Jesus didn't really die, that's what they try to get us to believe. Can you believe it? But the fact that these women came to the tomb with the intention of anointing our Lord's body strongly argues that they believed that he, in fact, had died. When they were by his cross and when they saw his badly battered and bloodied dead body come off that cross, they came back early Sunday morning to respect his body with the common Jewish burial practice. They knew that their master had died, and they simply wanted to extend the customary, practical love of treating his deceased body with respect. You know, there are other scriptures that make it clear that people who were reasonable and eyewitnesses knew that Jesus really died. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 5, is the most salient, clear, biblical definition of the gospel. It essentially says that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. That is, there's a fact in the gospel, Christ died. The fact was predicted that he would by the Old Testament scriptures, and the fact that Christ died was proven by the fact that they buried his body. I mean, the Roman soldiers wouldn't have allowed anybody to take him off the cross except they had done their job and he was truly dead. Joseph of Arimathea wouldn't have moved our Lord's body from Golgotha to his tomb yet to be completed, his stone-hewn tomb, except Joseph of Arimathea and those who may have helped him believed that Jesus Christ was dead. And then the gospel goes on that he was raised. We're going to get to that when we get to a myth that says that he wasn't in fact raised. We'll get to that in a minute. So the point I want us to see in answer to the first myth that Jesus didn't really die is the Jewish burial custom, the faith and the effort of the women would argue against a phony, faked, misunderstood, fainting instead of dying. What's the second myth? The second myth you will hear is that angels don't really exist. People will say that's just a fairy tale, just something that Christians believe about these angels. They don't really exist. But the answer is in verses 5 and 6 of our text. And the answer is that once inside Jesus' tomb, the women became amazed and alarmed. Verses 5 and 6, Mark 16 And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. I guess they were. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Once inside the Lord Jesus' tomb, they got alarmed. (laughs) They got amazed. They saw and heard what they didn't expect to see and hear because they saw what they thought was a young man inside the tomb. And they were startled that something living was inside a place for the dead. I might add, a place for the dead which Rome had vigorously sealed shut from the outside. And so these precious women, of course, didn't expect any voice when they came into Jesus' tomb. They expected stone silence like you would at a cemetery. They were startled. They were alarmed. They were astonished. And what they got inside, totally startling them and even alarming them, was an audible voice of reassurance and explanation. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. It says, reports, that this young man, who actually was an angel dressed in a white robe, that this young man was sitting on the right. Maybe you have seen pictures of Jesus' garden tomb in Jerusalem, and Beth and I have been inside of it. When you walk into the inside of the Lord Jesus' tomb, On the left, the whole left side is what they call a weeping chamber. 
so that people could come into the tomb on that side of the tomb, cry for the physical death of their loved one. Then on the right-hand side of this tomb are two burial beds, one up in the corner to the right and one sort of immediately beside you when you walk into the tomb by the wall, the front wall of the tomb. Jesus' body was laid in the burial bed that was finished at that time of his death, carved into the stone in the upper right corner, and the other burial bed that was adjacent to the person coming into the tomb was not yet finished. They had started to hew out from the stone a second burial bed, but it wasn't finished, and that's what the scripture tells us, right, that Joseph of Arimathea donated his tomb, his new tomb, because it wasn't all finished. Between Jesus Christ's burial bed up in that corner of the tomb and the burial bed I'm describing that wasn't quite finished right beside you as you enter the door of the tomb is a short distance. I'd say maybe four feet between Jesus' burial bed and the unfinished burial bed, about four feet. And when Beth and I walked in that tomb in 1998, there was like a shelf coming out of the rock wall between Jesus' burial bed and this other burial bed. Isn't it something the account tells us, the scriptural account tells us that the man, the angel, was seated to the right? He was seated on that ledge of the stone that I saw with my own two eyes. And it says, it says that He was seated on the right, and he said to them, see the place where they laid him. Now, if this is the tomb, the doorway's behind me, the unfinished burial bed is here, the wall to the tomb is here, somewhere between here and Jesus Christ's burial bed was where the angels sat. And all he had to do to the women was gesture like this, see where they laid him maybe five, four or five feet from where the angel sat. See where they laid him. Now, we're not told whether the women, startled and alarmed, (laughs) whether they knew he was an angel or they thought he was a man. It's not entirely clear. But we are told twice that these women were amazed, alarmed, And in the language of the New Testament, the word translated amazed or alarmed here is utterly astonished. Let me give you, uh, it's not not the best example, but I met a musician here in uh, Nassau, and we got talking about maybe getting a little older, the two of us, and he said that he's getting forgetful, and he said that when he went out to do a gig, a musical gig, he forgot he left his front door of his house open. And he was utterly astonished. (laughs) He was utterly astonished, alarmed, amazed when he came home and his door was wide open. Multiply that by a thousand and that's how the women felt. They were astounded. They were alarmed. They were utterly astonished. They had total surprise. They had, it gave them pause. It rendered them speechless. It made them think they needed to take a breath in to catch their breath. And it was un, 
explainable to them. I mean, these devout women started the morning not sure how they'd get into Jesus' tomb, and they got into the tomb, they found it to be empty, bodiless, and an angel was the security guard. (laughs) No wonder they were astonished. And understandably, these dear women, this combination of a bodiless tomb and a talking angel as the security guard totally amazed them, totally alarmed them. Friends, angels really do exist. In verse 5, what we've just read, the angel had the appearance as a young man, and he wore a long white robe. In another gospel account of what was inside this tomb, these angels, Matthew 28, verses 2 and 3, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Maybe there was more than one angel. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Luke, the gospel writer Luke, in chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, describes what was going on with the angel at the empty tomb in this way. He says that the two angels, there were two, and that their clothes dazzled. Luke 24, 4 and 5, listen. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that is the woman, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? So there were two angels in this account. And their clothes dazzled. (laughs) Now clearly, these angels were not humans who had impeccable laundry skills. Angels really do exist. The next response is to myth three. And myth three is that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Some people would have you to believe that Jesus Christ didn't literally, bodily, physically rise from the dead, they say. What do we say to that? We say this. According to verse seven of Mark 16, Inside Jesus Christ's empty tomb, the women were directed to announce that the risen Lord would meet his disciples in Galilee. Verse 7. The angel told the women, but go, that is from the tomb, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him just as he said to you. Now, Let me state the obvious. You don't declare a dead man's plans. You don't say that a dead person will meet someone at the Acropolis on Tuesday at noon. You can't declare a dead person's plans or schedule. And if you try, and the person's still dead, there's going to be a lot of people who are stood up. Unless the man who was once dead comes back to life. Verse 7 again. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter, Peter has denied him three times before the cross. There was special attention for Peter. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee where you will see him as he said to you, 
<laughs> Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. He kept that appointment with his disciples in Galilee, and that kept appointment of seeing his own disciples in Galilee proved that he was truly alive after having been truly dead. Remember I said the 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5 gives us the biblical definition of the gospel. Christ died for sins, was predicted by the Old Testament scriptures, and it was proven that he was dead. They buried him. The second part of the gospel in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4b through 5a says, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen. Here's what's going on there. Fact is that Christ rose from the dead, predicted by certain Old Testament scriptures, proven by being seen. In verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15, being seen by one person at a time, and the example of Peter is cited, being seen by 12 at a time, and being seen by over 500 persons at a time. He rose from the dead. <laughs> he rose from the dead. Hallelujah, he did rose from the dead. Fourth myth. The fourth myth is that the Bible doesn't really report the truth. You ever heard that? Not just in conjunction with the resurrection of Jesus. Have you heard people tell you, well, the Bible's not really truthful, or it's an error? The answer to that from, first, uh, from Mark 16, rather, is in verse 8. Verse 8, so they, that is the women who came to anoint his body with burial spices, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they were trembling and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. <laughs> that is real. That is not painting makeup over the blemishes of their fear and astonishment at his resurrection. And so the point, if you're taking notes, is that running away from Jesus' tomb, the women were afraid. It seems to me that if the Bible doesn't report all the truth, then it would paint these women in a far more favorable light, don't you think? I mean, for example, it might have said, they went out and they couldn't stop telling others. Or they calmly pondered at the tomb for some time. Or they connected the dots between what they had seen in Jesus' words and with what they had read in the Old Testament. It doesn't say that. Or they returned their burial spices for a refund and told the story throughout all of Jerusalem. It doesn't say that. Or they told everyone everything because they were confident and settled down. It doesn't say that. It says, embarrassingly, accurately, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You know, those kind of responses to Jesus Christ's resurrection that I speculated that a Bible that just dresses up falsehood to make it look good, to make people in the Bible look good. Those kinds of responses to Christ's resurrection would have been nice, maybe, but the problem would have been that those kind of responses would have been pure fiction and entirely untrue. 
And God's word on whatever topic it speaks to never, ever reports fiction. Never, ever reports or purports fairy tale. Never. What really happened is what the Bible reports. The women all quickly ran away because they were terrified. They all fled the tomb. They all were trembling. They all were astonished. And they all went stone silent. In verse 8, do you see the word afraid? For they were afraid. In the Greek language of the New Testament, that's phobeo from which we get our English word phobia. Phobeo means alarmed, bewildered, overwhelmed, lost for words. This is not particularly flattering, but it's real and truth. These are ways that those precious women actually felt. They were alarmed. They were bewildered. They were overwhelmed, and they were at a loss for words. A book less true than the Bible would have put makeup all over those blemishes to the women's faith. But the Bible really does always report the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Human faults and failures are honestly presented for what they were because the Bible always reports the whole truth, even when the truth puts a Bible hero, a Bible character, in a bad and terrible light. What do you mean, Pastor Rob? I mean, Jacob was a cheater. Jonah ran from God. Peter had a temper. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Zacchaeus was a thief. Noah got drunk. Sarah laughed at God's promise. Martha was a worrier. And Thomas doubted. And you can go Old and New Testament. Because the Bible tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, some of the people in the Bible are painted in a very unflattering but true light. Now, lest we... Keep this all at arm's length. Lest we, lest we, yeah, yeah, the Bible really paints a picture that's not very flattering of Bible characters. The Bible also paints a picture about you and me as believers. And it's a truthful picture. You ready? Some of what the Bible says about you and me isn't very flattering to us either. You ready? It says that every believer's heart is deceptive and deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. It says even believers in our flesh are wretches, Romans 7, verse 24. When a believer calls someone an idiot, we have murdered that person, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. When a believer looks on a woman to lust after her, that believer has already committed adultery with her, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Not, this is not flattering. In our flesh, all believers, all believers are fully capable of any sin. And if you doubt that, watch out. All believers in our flesh are capable of any sin, including immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, outbursts of anger, dissension, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing, Galatians 5, 19 and 21. It says that we're all sheep that we've all gone astray from God, Isaiah 53, 6. It says that all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of God's glory, Romans 5, excuse me, Romans 3, 23. 
the accurate picture of you and me is that we so easily are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malice, malicious gossips, without self-control. <laughs> you don't put this on your resume, right? Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, prone to hold to a form of godliness although denying its power, 2 Timothy 3, 2-5. We are all, it says of us, we are all unable to earn heaven by our good deeds. Titus 3, 4 and 5. And so you've heard me say, but on this Resurrection Lord's Day, let me say it again. If you don't know that you're right with God, the bad news of the Bible is about you and the good news is about God. The Bible says we all fall short of God for, the way, uh, for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. God says we earn a paycheck for falling short of him. It's death or separation from God, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's bad news about us. The good news about God is he loved he loves us. He's got, he's got hope for us. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Good Friday. That's good. The good news gets better. We can receive the forgiveness of sin and a place in heaven eventually by the simple action of putting our faith and trust completely on the finished work of Christ. Galatians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not church, not baptism, not giving to the poor. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast. If you've never transferred your trust from yourself or your religious upbringing, or anything or anyone else other than Jesus, today, Resurrection Lord's Day, would be the right day to transfer your trust to the finished work of Christ. If someone asks you, God says, what, should, what would you say if God said, why should I let you into heaven? If you answer anything with a first-person pronoun, you're wrong. I got confirmed. I tried my best. The answer starts with Christ. God says, why should I let you into heaven? My answer is Christ. He died for me. He was raised for me. He's my only hope, Christ. Make sure that's your only hope. And so I don't want to leave you this Resurrection Lord's Day morning only with the fact that the Bible reports truth about us in our depravity and in our struggle with sin and our sanctification I also must close this time in God's word, this resurrection, Lord's Day, pointing out the vital connections between Christ's resurrection and the believer's justification and sanctification. Justification is a $5 Bible word that simply means God's work of declaring believers right before him because of Christ's cross work. That's what justification is. It says in Romans 4, 25, referring to Christ, he was delivered up, that is to the cross, because of our offenses. If we didn't have offenses in the mind of God, his, the Father would never have delivered his son up to be crucified on the cross. 
who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised bodily resurrection because of our justification. If we as believers were not justified, declared innocent by the cross work of Christ, then the Father never would have raised Jesus Christ from the dead, but he did. And because the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you can know as a believer in Christ that you have been justified. That's not a hope-so fact. That's a no-so fact. And so there's this connection between us being justified before God, considered right before God because of Christ's cross work, And sanctification is the next work that God does after he justifies us. He sanctifies us. There's a sense in which we're sanctified, set apart for God's possession and use. When my parents had company, they'd set out all these nice dishes with candies and peanuts and special new towels in the bathroom. And I was told, don't eat the candy. Don't eat the peanuts. They're for our guests. Don't use the special hand towels in the bathroom. They're for our guests. So the peanuts, the candy, and the towels were sanctified, set apart for our guests' possession and use. (laughs) Sanctification is when God sets the believer in Christ apart for his own possession. You You don't belong to yourself anymore. Christ has purchased you with his blood. God sanctifies the believer positionally at the moment of conversion, sets you apart from sin and self for his possession and use. But there's a sense in which that being set apart for God's possession and use is not just positional, it's also a process. We battle this until we see Jesus through the rapture or physical death. And so this sanctifying process is that God is setting us apart as believers for his possession and use. How I handle money, how I treat my wife, how I view ministry, etc. Increment by increment, God in his Holy Spirit's work is setting me more and more apart for God's possession and use. He's doing the same for you if you're saved. And so our business is to cooperate. I close with this passage to do with sanctification, and to do with resurrection. You ready? It is Ephesians 1, 18 to 21. It's a prayer that the Holy Spirit had the Apostle Paul inscripturate in a letter to a church at ancient Ephesus. And we jump into this prayer at verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1, and this is what he said in the prayer. And this is how Christ is praying for you if you're his. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And watch. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That verse is saying that you and I who know Christ as Savior by faith have access to tap into the very same power of God the Father that he used to raise his son from the dead. The same power. So don't be like Flip Wilson was. Oh, the devil made me do it. I was helpless. I was a victim. No. The same power that God the Father displayed to raise Christ from deadness to life in resurrection is the same 
power available for you as a believer in Jesus to say no to sin and yes to righteousness tomorrow at work, in your family, with your wife or your husband or your kids. The same power that the Father exhibited to raise Christ from the dead is at your disposal. Believe it. Ask for it. Live it. And say no to sin and yes to righteousness. No to fear and yes to faith. No to self and yes to the Savior. No to refusing to witness Christ to lost people. Yes to being eagerly prayerful to witness Christ to non-believers. And so Christ is risen, hallelujah, and the same power that the Father exhibited to raise him from the dead is the same power to live out the sanctification work that he is doing in your life, believer, setting you increment by increment, situation by situation, Setting you apart more and more for your Savior's possession and use. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you that all these myths have been debunked. Jesus really did die. Angels really do exist. Jesus really did rise from the dead. The Bible really does report the truth. Oh, Lord, may we stand on the platform of those truths and draw upon the resurrection power that God the Father possesses still to impart to his children so that we would live in victory all the days of our lives. And we ask this in the name of the one who was dead and is now alive. And God's people said, amen.